If you have your Bibles, we are going to continue in Matthew chapter 24. And so Matthew chapter 24 is, is where we're going to be this morning. We are, we are still in the middle. Actually, we're not in the middle yet. We're still at the beginning of this Olivet Discourse that's going to run from chapter 24 all the way through chapter 25. Last week, we, we, we saw the beginning of this. Um, but this is the, the Olivet Discourse is the fifth and final discourse um, of Matthew's gospel. And so we're going to keep working through it together. But just kind of big picture, last week I gave you six points that, that's the outline for the entire discourse. And last week we covered the first two points. And this week we're just going to look at one point, which is going to be um, verses 15 through 28 of chapter 24. So that's the passage we'll read. It's Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28. But this is still just in the, in the middle of our big outline. And so this week's section is, is, is week two of five weeks, uh, or point three of six points. So, so however you want to look at that. Um, we're going to be at that up there, point three, the height of the birth pains. Um, and then we'll look, there'll be, there'll be two sections under that. Um, but let me read, read the passage and then we'll, we'll pray and then we'll look at um, what God's word has for us. So Matthew chapter 24, uh, beginning in verse 15 is where I'll begin reading. And I'll read through verse 28. So this is what Jesus says still in the middle of, of this discourse. He says, so, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let me, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll work through this, this passage together. Father, we pray, I pray that you would... Give me utterance to speak what is true and to explain and exhort according to the truth of these verses. So help us to understand them and to apply them rightly. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we work through this, just let me, the, the, the heading of this third point is the height of birth pains. And so let me, we, we, we hinted at this last week. Let me just... Jesus uses this, this imagery of birth pains, which I know nothing about, just to be clear, 
I know nothing about birth pains, but he uses this imagery to describe this period of travail and tribulation that will precede the, the rebirth or the, the messianic triumph of the world. Okay, And so every generation prior to this final coming of Jesus will feature what was described in verses 4 through 14 that we've talked about last week, the birth pains, the beginning of birth pains. So the sufferings and the trials as witnessed um, by experienced by the first disciples and then others of their generation, but has subsequently been experienced by every generation, are but the beginning of the birth pains. And so as happens in actual childbirth, these, these pangs, these birth pains, they, they don't only foretell the end, they will intensify until the end comes. And so what, what we looked at last week, which again will become more clear this week, is that what happens but between the time of the first and second coming of Jesus are, are these birth pains and these, these, these experiences of the, the first generation of disciples, but has been experienced by the church throughout. This, this cyclical experience of wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution, all the things we looked at in verses 4 through 14 of, of last week. And so again, and Jesus' point is this doesn't mark the end. This doesn't mean it's the end. It's just the beginning of this process, of this cycle. And so he is going to answer the question of, of what, what are going to be the signs of his coming. That's going to be next week's sermon passage. But he's not there yet because this week in the passage we just read, he's still focused on what the disciples ask at the beginning of this discourse. Which Do you remember what they asked at the very beginning? They said, he, he had said that the temple is going to be destroyed. And they said, well, when is this going to be? So he's still focused on that question and the, 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 the point of the end of the temple. And what he's going to do is he's going to focus on the destruction of the temple. And this destruction of the temple is located within the birth pains. And so it is, in one sense, just another one of the signs of what's going to happen between the first and second comings of Christ. But it's unique among the birth pains. That's why I, I call this the height of birth pains because it's significant because this is not something that can keep happening over and over because number one, there's only one temple. Once it's destroyed, it's not being built back. So there, there can't be this continual sign of, of, of the, the times of, of destruction of the temple over and over again. It's one temple. Wars and famines, these, could, these are birth pains that could occur over and over and do occur over and over and will occur over and over, but the destruction of the temple, that's not the case. So it's unique in that sense. But the other reason is that this, this sign is going to be a huge experience for the one standing immediately in front of him. The disciples are going to be around for the destruction of the temple, and so he's preparing them for what's about to come. So he wants them to know specifically, yes, th these famines and, and wars and earthquakes and tribulation, that's going to be experienced by all of my people, but, but this one sign, this, this height of this, this extremely intense sign is going to be happening right before your eyes, actually in the matter of, of several decades. And so he's preparing them for what's going to happen. He's going to warn them so that they and those that they influence will be able to escape and be ready for it. And so all of that is important because as we look at our verses this morning, the big picture is that verse 4, what we started last week, all the way through the end of our passage this week, discuss the birth pains of the Messiah from beginning to end. So, so these ex the, the things that are described in 4 through 28 focus on what is going to happen between the first and second coming, while 15 through 21, within that big one, 15 through 21, right in the middle, 
is the description of a particular birth pain, which is the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, so, so hopefully that'll work itself out as we work through. But let's start there with that particular experience, which is the, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So verses 15 through 21, the first point is great tribulation in Jerusalem. So we see great tribulation in Jerusalem, verses 15 through 21. So, so notice again what he says in verses 15 through 21. I want you to listen to him again in thinking about this is des- describing the specific destruction of Jerusalem and the temple therein. He writes, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the ones who are on the roof, roof on the housetop, the rooftop, not go down but to escape. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak, but to flee. And I'll ask for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Woe to them. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then, talking about at that time, then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And so what Jesus says here, this destruction, this event found its primary fulfillment in an event that took place in our past. Right? So from the time he's speaking, it's in the future, but now as we're reading, it took, it took place in the past. What he's talking about is a direct answer to the question that the disciples ask up in verse 3. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And his answer is there's going to be a time of great tribulation. Not the great tribulation, but great tribulation And it's the great tribulation that is going to be the time when the temple is destroyed. It's going to involve the temple and Jerusalem. So notice what he says first, verse 15. He he mentions this idea of the abomination of desolation or the abomination that makes desolate. Verse 15, he says, when you see this thing, the abomination of desolation. So so when you see this thing, what's he talking about? What what is this abomination of desolation? The background is the book of Daniel. Notice how he says, the one spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So the background is Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, this phrase or this character is mentioned three times. And in all of these occurrences in the book of Daniel, Daniel is talking about an individual, a a ruler, a king, who will come in. At that time, there's a temple in Jerusalem. And this, this individual will come in and profane the temple. This, this, this ruler will come in and make desolate the temple will obstruct the offerings and the sacrifices being offered, that the, the holy place will be made desolate. And in Daniel's prophecy, that was very specifically fulfilled by a Syrian king named Antiochus IV. You can go back and re-listen to our sermons on Daniel. But Daniel prophesied this abomination of desolation was going to destroy the temple, and that came to pass. God judged Israel by, the, by bringing in the Syrian king who, then, who came in and destroyed the temple. Some sources say that he set up an idol of the Zeus, a god in the temple where, where only God was to be worshipped. He set up an idol. Some say he, he sacrificed pigs in the temple, which for the Jewish people would have, would have been a terrible desecration of the temple. Whatever he did, history records that Antiochus came and and fulfilled Daniel's prophecy. And so when Jesus says in verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, he doesn't mean when you see Antiochus standing in the temple, because that's that's long before, that's, that's come and gone. But what he means is, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, which which his audience would have been, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, 
and you know how that prediction was fulfilled, namely by Antiochus, then you will recognize an eerily similar situation playing out before your very eyes. And when that happens, flee. When that happens, get out. When that happens, run away, which is why this prediction by Jesus certainly points to what would happen in Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70. And so Jesus, in, in the context of Matthew's gospel, he's just condemned the temple. He's pronounced judgment against the religious leaders. He said, woe to them, woe to them. And now he's left the temple and he's asked by his disciples, that, that's a beautiful temple. And he says, yeah, it's going to be destroyed. And they say, oh my goodness, well, when's that going to happen? Well, in answer to that, he's saying, well, when is it going to happen? Think back to Daniel. And Jesus sees in Daniel a still future fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. So Antiochus fulfilled it, but there's further fulfillment that Jesus sees. Jesus says very specifically, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then you should run. And so verse 15 is the answer to when will these things be? Whereas we saw verses 4 through 14 contain things that are not signs. It's not signs of the ends. These things must take place, he said. But here, this, when you see this sign, this is, this is a sign to get out. The temple is about to be destroyed. And that sign is the appearance of the abomination of desolation. When he appears, then Jesus says the destruction of temp the temple is at hand. That's the sign of the destruction of the temple. Not of the end. Right? This, again, this is part of the birth pains, but this is the sign of the end of the temple. And this is why what's fascinating, as you read this, when Jesus says, let the reader understand, Jesus says, let the reader understand. This is not as though Matthew is writing this and he writes it and he says, oh, if you're reading my gospel, you need to understand. No, Jesus is saying this. And his implication or assumption is the reader, not of the gospel, but the reader of Daniel. So Jesus is saying, when you see the one spoken of by Daniel, let the reader understand. Let the reader of Daniel understand. There was a prophecy of the destruction of the temple there by an individual. The same is going to be the case with this temple. So Jesus says that, and we know it's not Matthew adding it because the, the other synoptic gospels have that same phrase. And so it, I think it's original to Jesus' teaching. And so he's saying, when you see this abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, that's the temple. When you see this person in this place, then you need to flee because this individual is going to wreak havoc. The temple is going to be destroyed. Now we'll say more about that in a second. But notice how he continues in verse 17 and 18, this, this, these two specific situations uh, that he mentions, and his point is to highlight the necessity of escape. So if you're up on the housetop, don't go back downstairs to get what you, what you need or what you think you need. Just get out. Or if you're out in the field, don't go get your cloak. Just go. In both these instances, he, he mentions these, these situations where there's potential hindrances to the escape. So if you're on the housetop, in fact, one commentator says that Jesus... Jesus' assumption is that you'd be like Spider-Man and jump from rooftop to rooftop. Now, the rooftops in, in this day would be different than in our day, but his point is, don't even go back downstairs to get what you need. Just, just run across the rooftops to get out of the city. Don't be hindered by what you think you need. The need is to escape. And if you're in the field working and you've taken off your cloak because that would hinder your work, don't worry about it. Just run. Just get away from the city because destruction is at hand. That, that's his point, is to highlight the need to escape. So the haste, escaping, is your priority, which is why he continues in verse 19 to, to mention ladies, women who, who can't escape their hindrances, 
right? In these two situations, he says, woe to them. Or, or maybe your translation says, it'll be dreadful for these people. Because in these situations, the women who are pregnant or the women who are nursing their infants, they can't leave without their children or, or, or leave without the hindrance. They will necessarily be hindered. And Jesus says, woe to them. How dreadful it will be. Alas, for them. He, he's showing sympathy for them. He's expressing sorrow for the women in those situations when this tribulation he's talking about occurs. In verse 20, pray that your flight, so this event, pray that it may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. And again, this, this, this is hindrances to the escape. So winter, it's not because it's so cold, right? In, in Jerusalem and in Israel, it doesn't get cold where it's like it's snowing, but because in the winter season was, was the rainy season. And when it's rainy and, and it's muddy and the, the rivers or the, the, the water is overflowing, the escape would necessarily be hindered. So he says, pray that it not be in the winter, but also pray it won't be on the Sabbath which the assumption is that the, the, the Sabbath law would still be in observance in the Jewish culture at that time, but also that the Sabbath law that limits the distance you can travel on a, on a, on a Sabbath, you can only go but so far, he says, don't, don't pray that it doesn't happen then so that you not be limited or hindered in your escape. And so, and so he, he's, he's, he's highlighting or emphasizing the need for escape and then in verse 21 is the, the potentially troubling statement, or potentially confusing, for then, the then he's talking about is, is this destruction of the temple that's going to happen, then he says, there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now I'm, I'm telling you, that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 when he, in verse 21. And what he says in verse 21, I don't, so, so because it's about the temple, I don't think it's about the end of the age. I don't think it's a, a part of a, a seven-year tribulation which the church is raptured and there's this great tribulation in, in, in occurring. I don't think that's what he's talking about in verse 21. He's talking about the destruction of the, the temple in Jerusalem that the disciples have just asked him about. And Jesus says it will be a great tribulation that has not been and never will be again. In other words, this tribulation, what's going to happen in and around Jerusalem when the temple is destroyed is going to be unlike anything that had or ever would happen or be experienced again. That's what Jesus says. And so the question is, well, how is the destruction of the temple in AD 70 a fulfillment of what he describes in verse 21? And so I, I, I want to answer that question. And I, I think... I think there is a good answer to that question on how the destruction of the temple is a great tribulation that never had been from the beginning and would never be again. So here's, here's why. Here's the answer to that question. First, let me just give you a summary of what happened. So the time period between 66 and 70 AD. And again, you can go, you can go and research this. You can do all this on your own. This is, we're relying on extra biblical sources, but I think it validates what Jesus says here. I'm trying not to go into my, my historian mode here and just get all excited about dates and times. I'm just going to tell you why I think that what happened in AD 70 is a fulfillment of what Jesus promised, prophesied here. So, so what happens in Jerusalem, so we're at 66 AD, AD 66, Jesus is gone. He, he's been, been buried and, and raised and sent the Spirit, and now the church is growing. Right, So I think in Book of Acts time, but what happens in Jerusalem specifically is in 66 AD, there's a Jewish revolt. So they're revolting against the Roman rule there in Palestine. In both, in, as in most cases, the Romans are more powerful and they, they, they don't want to put up with this little uprising. So they're going to respond 
with excessive countermeasures. And so there's this, this revolt, and, and, and Rome responds to put down this revolt, and most of Palestine is, is under control again by a guy named Vespasian, one of the, the, he would become emperor, but he isn't now. He's sent by Nero, who's the emperor. And so, so he goes to deal with the revolt in, in 66. But then, as that's happening, at the same time, on the, the stage of world history, Rome is having a bit of a civil war itself. And so all the Romans are called back to Rome. And so now, the, the, the firm rule of Rome in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Palestine, this area, is now pulled up because the Roman rulers are, are now re, they're retreating and they're having to deal with their, their own civil war. And so with the, the Romans gone, guess what happens there in Jerusalem? Right? Jerusalem, the, the Jews have its own civil war, as it were. So there's, there's these factions, these Jewish parties, who are now battling for control because at this time... There's no clear leader. There's different factions. There's zealots. And there's other teachers of the law, the Pharisees or scribes, and they're all vying for control. And so there's this own civil war. And in fact, there are many instances where the zealots are, are killing the religious leaders. So Jews are killing Jews in this time. And so, so Jerusalem is, is in its own civil war. And as that progresses, the civil war in Rome is dealt with. And now they send again the Romans to get things under control in Jerusalem again. And now Jerusalem, having this own experience of civil war, is weakened and demoralized. And there's, there's not much of a fight that's put up. So Rome is now ruling again. And Vespasian becomes the emperor of Rome. Nero dies. And he sends his son Titus back to Jerusalem. And basically, is he commands his son to decimate Jerusalem and prevent any further revolt or rebellion. We're tired of what's happening there, so put down the revolt. Basically, end the will of those Jews in Jerusalem. So Titus, in 70 AD, goes into Jerusalem and, and it puts the, the town, the city proper, but really the whole region, under siege for a five-month period. And this five-month period... I think, is what Jesus is talking about when he says that this is what's going to happen. It's going to be tribulation like it has never been. And, and just to, to get a picture of that, we only have to look at a man, a first century historian named Josephus, who was a Jew, who, who was among the Jews, but then he actually switches allegiance and, and, and becomes friendly with the Romans but, but he has firsthand accounts of what's going on. And he's careful never to indict the emperor in what happens. But he, he seems to give an accurate account or description of what's going on. But Josephus, who's recounting all of what happened here in Jerusalem at this time, he has no trouble claiming that none of the disasters since the world began can compare to what he saw in Jerusalem. And so for Israel, it would be the worst this would not be the last tribulation in human history, but for Israel, it would be the worst. For this nation, the closing year, years of the war with Rome would prove to be a holocaust unrivaled in its enormity. Not only would Jerusalem's population be decimated, one commentator notes, but the temple would also be destroyed and would never be rebuilt. And so these events, let me just give you three reasons why I think this was particularly or especially devastating. First, think about these numbers. There were hundreds of thousands at the low end of the estimate to 1.1 million Jews killed in this siege in Jerusalem in AD 70. So that, that's the range. It's a, it's a long range, I, I understand. But depending on who you read, that's the range, 600,000 to 1 million. And when you take into consideration at that time, 
there were an estimate, estimated number of Jews living in Jerusalem was 60,000 to 80,000. So you have 60,000 Jewish residents in Jerusalem, but you have 600,000 to 1 million Jews who are killed in this, in this event, in this siege. And so you, you have a picture of devastation. So you have Jews there, but you also have, at this time, there's the Jewish festival of Passover that now is overpopulated. So now you, have, you could have up to a million Jews in the city at this time, and, and, and the, this, this Roman army comes in and just destroys it. And so percentage-wise, at minimum, there were more than 10 times the population of Jews living in Jerusalem that were, that were exterminated. I mean, percentage-wise, that, that doesn't compare to the Holocaust even, in terms of the, the surviving percentage to those who were not survived. And so this was the greatest tribulation that would ever be experienced by the Jews. In fact, this is what Josephus, in his, in his book, it's called The War of the Jews, and you can, you can get one off off of one of your pastor shelves. Just he, he's, his writings, he's a church historian, but he has a whole book, and I think it's 200 pages, on the war of the Jews. And as you read through it, it's horrific. It's horrific what he describes, not only because of the final effect and the death toll numbers, but because of what's taking place within this holy city, within Jerusalem. And so as, as he's describing what's happening, you, you have a continued infighting among the Jews. Jews are still fighting and killing one another. But, but now you, have, you also have famine starting to spread. So, so the Romans just want to, to, to eliminate food coming into the city. So, so famine starts growing. And people, the Jews, the, and many Jews have fled for protection within the city. But you have people who are starving who are now resorting to eating from the sewers or animal dung or leather shields. And even worse, I won't mention the worst thing that I read, but even worse where people are starving and they're doing whatever they can to eat. So that, that's tragic. But then when the Romans, so there were three walls there around Jerusalem and, and they, they couldn't easily get over all three. But when they finally get over the third wall and invade, it was chaotic. Here's how Josephus describes this. He says, the holy house was on fire. Talking about the temple. So they, they, there's, you don't know who to believe, but some people say that Vespasian or Titus said, don't burn the temple. But then the soldiers on their own said, burn the temple. Maybe he's just trying to protect his boss, the temple's on fire. Everything was plundered that came to hand. And then thousands of those that were caught were slain. There's no commiseration of any age or any reverence to gravity, but children and old men, profane persons and priests were all slain in the same manner. Many of those that were worn away by famine and their mouths almost closed, when they saw the fire of the holy house, they exerted their utmost strength and broke out into groans and cries again. The hill itself on which the temple stood was, was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it. The blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and those that were slain were more in number than those who slew them. For the ground did nowhere appear visible because of the dead bodies that lay on it. I mean, later he would say that the number of crosses were less than the number of bodies to occupy the crosses because many of them were, were crucified. Again, this is horror, this is devastation. This is what happened 30-some years after Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen, get ready. And so that city is destroyed, and with it, the temple, the temple that was the, the foundation of the Jewish religion, God's presence among his people was ravaged and leveled. And so this is a significant event in the life of the Israelites. I mean, I, we don't have a comparison, but I thought about maybe 
if we saw an invading army just attack and burn and pillage the, the address of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So as a, as a country, that, that has some significance. I understand, I'm not getting political, but that's a house, a white house in D.C. that represents our country in many ways. And to see that ravage may give us a bit of a sense, though, though very small, of what it would be like for the Jews to see the temple on fire and destroyed and overrun with these pagans. And so that's what the Jews are seeing. The war, with, the war which the Jews made with the Romans, this is how Josephus closes his account. The war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that ever were heard of, both of those wherein cities have fought against cities or nation against nation. Accordingly, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. So I mention all of that to show that what happened in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple is why I think verse 21 can be true as it relates to the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus predicted there would be great tribulation such as it had not been from the beginning or would ever be again, and I think that happened. I think that happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, the one last thing that I have to note, which was just fascinating, amazing, you could say, is that most historians, as you read, they believe that the instructions given by Jesus through Matthew's gospel several decades before were followed by the Christians in Jerusalem then. And what that means is that Christians hear this, and when they see Right? The, the Romans in 66, when they began to arrive, they think, oh my goodness, Jesus talked about this. And the Christians actually fled the city so that many people believe not one Christian died in the siege of Jerusalem. Which if that's true, isn't that an amazing kindness of Jesus to prepare his followers for what was to come? In fact, the, the hills of Pella, the hill country of Jerusalem is where people, there, there's, there's um, sources that say that is where the Christian community fled when the armies began to approach. But we see Jesus predicted what would happen. This is, this is what's going to happen. Temple is going to be desecrated, and Jerusalem is going to experience great tribulation. So that, that's great tribulation in Jerusalem, verses 15 through 21. Now let's look at our, this, the next set of verses, the those days of 22 through 28. And we'll work quickly through these next verses. But as we go to verses 20 through, 22 through 28... We're going back to the time between the first and second comings. So, so again, verse 4 through 28 describes the birth pains, and 15 through 21 focuses on a specific birth pain, but then in verse 22, he backs back out and describes what's going to happen in, in all of this time between the first and second coming. So it's a shift back in verse 22. So let me, let me just show you. Um, read verse 22, then I'll explain. So verse 22 says... And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So again, this is where it's like a Christmas slide analogy. Well, what's he talking about? And I think 22 is a shift back to what's going to happen between the first and second coming of Christ. Now, just to be clear, some people see verse 22 when they say these days, those days of verse 22 is just a reference up to verse 19, the those days of the destruction of the temple. And so they read verse 22 as describing what happened in the destruction of the temple. I don't think that's right. It's possible, but I don't think it's right. 
So here's why I think those days of verse 22 is referring to those days of the, the birth pains between the first and second coming of Christ. First, right, in light of what we consider actually took place in the siege of Jerusalem, I find it hard to believe that the days were cut short. I mean, one commentator asked, how, what severe judgment could God have imposed on Israel? What greater devastation could Jerusalem have experienced than what was experienced? So it seems hard to understand that it was cut short. It makes more sense to understand the cutting short of days of the birth pains that, that he started describing 4 through 13. But then secondly, consider the language of verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. No human being, literally no flesh, would have been saved. This language seems more comprehensive or more universal than what happened in Jerusalem, doesn't it? The focus seems to be on this this universal scale. If those days hadn't been cut short, no human could be saved. It seems more comprehensive than just referring to the destruction of the temple, which is why I think it's a reference to something greater than the destruction of the temple. I think it's a reference to the, 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 the birth pains that will extend until the return of Christ, to the final great tribulation that's forthcoming. But it's not just verse 22 for the the cutting short of days and no flesh being saved. Notice verse 22 also says, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The phrase for the elect, again, it's more extensive. The elect, this phrase, it, it represents God's people. And when it's used elsewhere, it refers exclusively to the entirety of God's people, all of God's people which is why it'd be strange for Jesus to refer to all of God's people being saved by the cutting short of the days of AD 70. It just doesn't make sense. And third, the last reason I'll mention this, why I think 22 refers to what follows instead of what precedes, is the mention of false teachers that, that highlight verses 22 and following. The focus on these false teachers connects what Jesus said all the way back up in verses 4 and 5. Whereas Jesus warned, beware of the false teachers who claim to be Christ and and lead many astray. Beware of them. And now he's coming back on the other side of the destruction of the temple to talk about these false teachers. So look there at verse 23. Then, which I'm, I'm, I'm taking to mean, then in the midst of the birth pains of the wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and suffering and persecution, then in the midst of those times... If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Why? Verse 24. For, here's why, the reason, false Christs and false prophets will arise. And false Christs and false prophets will perform many great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. And so while in verses 4 and 5, Jesus highlighted the necessity of being our guard against false prophets, he just continues it. He's warning the disciples and also all those who would come after him of the great danger. And the danger is particularly relevant in the absence of the Christ. If you think about he's ascended back into heaven and he's gone. And and his people are waiting for his return. And birth pains are abounding. There's going to be a vacuum. Where's the Christ to deliver us? He's slow in his coming. Why can't he deliver us? And so many are going to arise and lead astray by claiming to be the one sent by, by God, by claiming to be the Christ and speaking as Christ or for Christ. And Jesus says, don't believe them. They're going to rise and they're going to lead others astray. And so he warns his followers. If anyone says, hey, look, here's the Christ or look, there he is. Don't believe it. If someone has to tell you, as we'll see later, as someone has to tell you that, it, that he's come, then it's not. He hasn't come. 
he gives this warning, not simply because there will be people making false claims about their identity, but verse 24, they're going to be performing great signs and wonders. There's going to be miraculous attestations that appear to say, well, this person is who they say they are. But Jesus is saying these false Christs and false, false prophets will perform miracles. And these miracles will appear to testify to their identity. But don't be deceived. He says many will be led astray by them. There will be even, Jesus says, a temptation for the elect, for his people to be led astray. But, verse 24, the, the, the elect can't be led astray. They can't be. If possible, they would have, but they can't be. But it's going to be a, a, a tempting time because of all that's going on with these false Christs and false prophets. And many will be led astray, Jesus says. And the underlying reality, again, the hope is that the elect cannot be deceived. God's people, those who follow Christ and are truly his, Jesus would say himself, they cannot be deceived because they know their shepherd. Right? The elect aren't deceived by those who claim to be Christ because they know the voice of their shepherd. That, that's why we've come to him in the first place. We've heard our shepherd call us. And we're his and we know his voice. We don't listen to the voice of an intruder. And so the elect cannot be deceived. So when someone says, I'm the Christ, God's people, the Christian knows that's not true because Christ I know and you're not him. And he's told me you're coming. The Christian knows there's only one Christ. And here, when that one Christ warns of many false teachers, we believe him and, and we're not deceived because he's told us beforehand. That's the point of this warning. And he concludes verse 26 through 28. So if they say, hey, look, he's in the wilderness. Don't go, Jesus says. If they say, hey, look, he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. Hey, look, I found this website and I think this is him. Or look at this, this video of this person. I think it's him. I th Jesus says, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. And so the reason Jesus gives for not believing any of these false prophets or antichrists, according to verse 27, is that when the Christ comes, when he reappears, when he returns a second time, it will be a very public universally recognized event, not limited to a wilderness sighting or an inner room revelation, but a worldwide cosmic revelation is what the return of Christ will be. When the true Christ and the true prophet comes, there will be no mistake. And the coming of Christ will be a personal, historical, and visible appearance. It will be of great power and glory, as we'll see. And when it happens, here's the point, when it happens, you won't have to wonder whether it's him or not. It'll be obvious to all, which is why that strange verse 28, I think, makes that simple point. That's weird, right? That is a weird verse. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But I think the point it makes is that as when, when you're riding down Route 10 in Smithfield into Surrey and you, and you see vultures flying ahead, you know that there's a dead corpse somewhere. You don't have to wonder, hey, I wonder if something's dead around there. No, when the vultures are there, you know that it's there. And so Jesus, I think, similarly makes the point, when the Son of Man appears, it'll be obvious. You won't have to wonder, I wonder if there's a carcass there. You will know because it'll be a cosmic, sky-rendering appearance. And so we don't have to worry about if we've missed it. We will know it. And that's where Jesus, where we're going to stop his, his, his teaching here. And, and next week, Lord willing, 
we will pick up in verse 29 and look at that event. Look at the coming of the Son of Man, which we're going to focus on verses 29 through 36. But as we close, let me just mention two points of application. And I'll be brief with these. But just from what we've just saw, since we are living between the times, I think first, we must be on guard. Be on guard. Beware of false prophets and the false Christs who would seek to do, and in fact do successfully lead many astray. We live in a world where many are following those they think represent Christ, but do not. Jesus told us these things, therefore we ought to be on guard. And in fact, two of his disciples who are listening to him would warn their audience. First Peter chapter 2, he says, false prophets also are among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, he's writing. And what, what will these false teachers do to those that Peter's writing to? They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And so Peter says, there's going to be false teachers. Or John, in 1 John chapter 2, he says, listen to what he describes. Children, it is the last hour. And, and, and as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. So John says there's been a lot of antichrists that have come. And I think that's his point is these false teachers, these, these, these false prophets are antichrists. And there's lots of them who are leading astray those who would follow Christ. And so the application is simply that the, the Christian and the church at large is to be on guard against false teaching, against what is outside of what the church believes, what Scripture has revealed, what Christians have always believed for all times. Another word for that is heresy. We ought to know what heresy is. We ought to know what what false doctrines have gained traction throughout the ages. So we ought to be on guard against those who teach in opposition to the Scriptures. And so a lot of these false teachings come in the form of, of deep theological subjects, like the nature of the Trinity. Many people teach things that are untrue about God in, under the guise of the Trinity. Well, God the Son is not equal with God. That's a heresy, and someone who teaches that is a false teacher. Or the identity of Christ wasn't truly divine or wasn't fully human, human or the nature of Scripture. Well, it's not really God's word to you. You can't trust it. It's man's word, but it's probably good. Right? That, that's false teaching, so we have to be on guard against that, again, against the, these deep theological categories. But we also need to be on guard against teaching that appear to be less, appear to be less theological. Things like the nature of humanity. This world, it's not a binary world. It's not. That's a false teaching. Creation itself testifies to the nature of this world or the necessity of repentance for the Christian. You can be a Christian, you don't have to repent of your sin. That's a false teaching. That will lead many people to hell. I can follow Jesus and not have to fight my sin or turn from my sin. I'm, sign me up if that's true. That's not true. That's a false teaching. Or those who would deny the sufficiency of the death of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Yeah, he died for your sins once, but, but you've got to make sure that you, you, you keep up. I mean, there, there are many, and we could go into to more categories, but Christian, you ought to be on guard against many who would lead you astray. One of the primary ways we do this is by committing to be part of a local church. So you're doing good. You're doing a step here by being here this morning. God calls and equips pastors and elders to protect the sheep. One of Will and Robert and I's jobs is to protect the sheep. And we protect you from false teaching. That's why we do membership interviews. 
If someone comes in claiming to, to be a Christian but, but teaches something false, we want to protect you from them. We don't want you to fellowship with them in this context. We want you to be friends with them and evangelize them so that they're saved and know the truth, but we don't want them as part of the inside when they don't need to be. The sheep are protected and guarded. That's part of our job as pastors. But in other ways, is for you to, to study and know the scriptures, to care about the truth. You ought to know more about the scriptures than you do about what's going on in the world or in the culture or in the sports world. I'm talking to myself. We live in a culture, a Christian culture, that is most, mostly apathetic and ignorant when it comes to the truth. It's just, that's just the reality. We don't care about theological accuracy. We don't care about words to describe God. We live in a Christian culture where, where books of, of false teachers or where television sermons of false teachers are highlighted and celebrated. And we say, and the Christian sees nothing wrong with that. We must be those who think deeply and think rightly about God. We must be on guard against false teachers. But then the last point of application is don't be alarmed. And this, this is the big one from this section. Don't be alarmed. God is in control. God is sovereign over all. And so we, even we see in the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, there's great evil at work. Just like the two prior times when the, the Jews were judged through exile and the, the temple was destroyed, there's great evil. In the book of Revelation, we see that outworking of great evil. But in light of all this, the consistent testimony, the con constant frame of Scripture is that God is sovereign and in control. And we saw specifically verse 22, God will cut short those days. He will. For the sake of his people, he will cut them short because he's sovereign and he has purposes in this world. We don't always know them, but we know that he will bring about the completion of his plan, that this world will reach its God-appointed end. And in that end, evil will not and cannot prevail. So be not alarmed. God is in control. Well, let me pray as we close.